Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 60, Almost Paradigm. Recorded here on August 1st. I'm actually recording this episode after the next one, episode 61, Descent. And this is because I found the perfect guest for an episode named Descent. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. But today's guests are really great too. You just wait and see. So thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Toucans. You're listening to it now. And our outro is Chinese Cafe. In corrections, uh, <laughs> wrongly, a couple times, in episode 58, Destroying the World, I argued that the term clicking hot was an employment of a special type of metaphor named synecdoche, but I don't think that that was correct. I, I, it would have been a synecdoche if the word clicking were referring to a Geiger counter, but it's not. It's referring to radioactivity. Clicking isn't a part of radioactivity. Clicking is a reaction to radioactivity. So, clicking hot would be heat that's reacting to radioactive decay. So if it's not synecdoche and it is just a metaphor, let's finish its explication, which we did not do in that episode. Clicking is transferring the qualities of a radioactive ionizing radiation and its harmful effects on our blood cells and internal organs onto hot temperatures. And by doing so creates an image of a radioactive wasteland, which is truly effective imagery. So that was a good one. In my episode with Darren Nash in episode 59, Under Control, I incorrectly correlated rediscovered animals with cryptid animals. They are categorically different. A rediscovered animal would be a known animal, if from nothing else, at least fossil evidence, whereas cryptids, on the other hand, are known anecdotally or only by witness accounts, not from verified evidence. So that was not correct line of thought, <laughs> though I'm glad we were able to talk a bit about cryptids in that episode. And finally, perhaps most fittingly for this episode, Almost Paradigm, I have a correction from episode three, Almost Almost Paradise. I happen to know some folks whom I love very much who just returned from Mexico and we were talking about the raccoon-like critters that had appear in that chapter, which I called Cotamundis. But I was not pronouncing them correctly. They don't sound like something you wear in the winter, like a Cotamundi, but instead like Croatia. They are Coatamundis. So forgive me for mis mispronouncing Coatamundis, which I'm told are commonly just referred to as Coatis. All right, in dinosaur news, our first piece of news is the description of a new ankylosaur from volume 21 of the Journal of Systematic Paleontology published in June 2023 called Vectipelta barati, a new ankylosaurian dinosaur from the lower Cretaceous Wessex formation of the Isle of Wight, UK. This new ankylosaur, Vectipelta barati, does not appear to be closely related to either Polycanthus, compared to which it was around 7 million years older than, or Hylaeosaurus, compared to which it is around 3 million years younger than. It is, quote, instead found in a clade with two Chinese ankylosaurs, suggesting a complex pattern of dispersal to and from Europe, North America, and Asia during the early Cretaceous. This is a bit of a surprise because if you were to find an ankylosaur on the Isle of Wight, you'd imagine that it would have been closely related to one of the known ankylosaur lineages previously described from that area, not from China. Uh, the author suggests that the reason this strange and surprising diversity of ankylosaurs was not previously known may potentially be due to the historic practice of previously discovered taxa from the Wessex Formation being universally cataloged as polycanthus when it isn't necessarily that after all. They recommend, quote, new and existing material in museum collections should be reappraised using an autopromorphy-driven approach. 
Vectipelta's name is derived from the Roman name of the Isle of Wight, Vectus, and Pelta is ancient Greek for shield. The species name Baratai honors Professor Paul M. Barrett in recognition of his major and ongoing contributions to dinosaurian vertebrate paleontology and his importance to the paper's authors as a mentor, supervisor, colleague, and friend. The holotype IWCMS 1996.153 and IWCMS 2021.75, housed at the Museum of Isle of Wight Geology, was excavated from the Wessex Formation and consists of a partial skeleton including many cervical, dorsal, sacral, and caudal vertebrae, a partial pectoral and pelvic girdle, elements of fore and hind limbs, and several osteoderms. And this is said to be the first ankylosaur identified from the Isle of Wight within 142 years. Though, as the authors have suggested, many historically cataloged specimens discovered in the area over the years, labeled as polycanthus, may actually represent new species. So, which Chinese taxa is Vectipelta more closely related to? We're told Dongyang Opelta and Shijangosaurus, which appear to be known from similar skeletal remains, are... are more closely related to this guy than the Hylaeosaurus or the Polycanthus. The second article is also about Ankylosaurus from April 2023 from the anatomical record called A Potentially Fatal Cranial Pathology in a Specimen of Tarkia. Tarkia is a Mongolian dinosaur named back in the 70s from the Campanian era of the late Cretaceous, and it's an Ankylosaurine, meaning yes, it had the awesome club tail you'd expect. This 18-foot beast had its head checked by the paper's authors along with the skulls of other Mongolian ankylosaurs too, for information about their internal anatomy. Computer tomography imaging of the Tarkia's skull, quote, revealed substantial internal anatomical differences from known Campanian North American taxa, particularly in the morphology of the airway. In addition, unexpected anomalies were detected within the airway and sinuses. The authors list the anomalies, which there were many of, and their report highlights the value of CT scanning fossils, quote, which in this case revealed large internal lesions in the skull that, at the time the scan was performed, were otherwise indiscernible. Now, from what I can gather, based on what the injury looks like, it appears this Tarkia specimen was either really headbutting other Tarkia, or it was bit in the head by something big. It's hinted at that a Tyrannosaurid may have done the biting, but... There really aren't any big theropods known from the Baron Goyot formation. There are lots of dromaeosaurs, alvarezsaurs, and oviraptorids, but not big theropods. Now, if this were from the Nemect formation, we'd have the very big Tarbosaurus hulking around, which would be just as fearsome as Tyrannosaurus in North America, but the timing doesn't quite match up. That said, if Tarkia were bit in the head by something that powerful, this would be a very interesting ichnofossil, or a fossil impression, that in this case just happens to be on another fossil, proving the existence of a previously unknown super theropod that could crush Ankylosaurus skulls. <laughs> All right, that's enough of that. All right, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guests this episode. All right, joining me today, I have two guests. Uh, the first is Matt Kelly from Geekscape, a podcast network and production company that grew out of a creator community, which today is home to a roster of over 18 weekly podcasts and constantly creating films, videos, and written content. And Matthew Milligan is a writer, producer, and professional musician who will be well known to you for his work with Wheatus famous for Teenage Dirtbag, as well as collaborating with a lengthy list of bands and musicians. Matt and Matthew, it is a, it's a real thrill to have you guys on the show today. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here. An honor. Thanks for having us. This is this is our first uh, like podcast field trip we've ever done, like working with another show. Okay. Like, yeah, I mean, Matt works with a thousand podcasts, as you just mentioned. But okay. for me, 
this is a weird algorithm like visiting another show thing and this is new for us so thank you so much well thanks for coming in uh keep uh keep an eye on your head the roofs are low in here so yes well look when, <laughs> there's one thing i love more than podcasting and it's amusement parks with mortality rates so uh oh, so true matt it's so true i couldn't say no uh coming to see the real jurassic park uh <laughs> over here so. So uh, Matt, Matthew, and I met after Finland installed a code submission evaluation system, which was designed to consider an algorithm that takes as input a positive integer n. And if uh, n is even, the algorithm divided it by 2. And if n were odd, the algorithm multiplied it by 3 and added 1. And the goal was to have the algorithm repeat until n was equal to 1. And then once the numeral was 1 was obtained, uh, this was rightfully declared a weird algorithm, resulting in two guys named Matt launching one podcast dedicated to the entire career of Weird Al Yankovic analyzed and dissected one song at a time. You guys have a very interesting <laughs> podcast. And uh, i got to tell <laughs> yeah. you, right, uh, the weird algorithm How is... How did I forget about that Finland trip, man? That was <laughs> yeah, I love that origin story. We have a great origin story. <laughs> we, um, I, I've listened to a bunch of Weird Al shows, and frankly... Uh, what you guys do is exactly what I've been looking for for a long time. Uh, a lot of people like to do like a Weird Al show and then try and be really weird <laughs> as, like, as like some homage to him. And you guys yeah. rather, uh, you know, have very relatable discussions and reminiscings on each episode. And uh, and I think it's just wonderful. A lot of insight in the music and the production of it. And uh, I think it's, you know, one of my favorites so far. So thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah. Oh. You know, we try to, we, we always like to say that like, you know, he, Al is weird and the music he makes is funny and, 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 uh, and all that. But the music side is very serious and clearly he and his band are incredibly talented. And like, we, we always try to highlight how skilled they are. Cause that gets lost when you're funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, it, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to like do a quick shout out to, uh, to someone who unfortunately, because uh, Matthew and I pre-record our episodes like a solid month to three months in advance of release. Uh, we won't be addressing this until sometime in September. <laughs> not really tied to Weird Al directly, definitely not tied to Jurassic Park, but we're recording this a day after Paul Rubens died, yes, who yes. I think is another person who, similar to Weird Al, you can look at it from a certain lens and it's just very dumb. Um, but you look at it through a slightly more critical lens of what it's doing satirically or or homage wise, and it's a masterpiece. It's mm. it's brilliance. Um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, probably the movie everybody watched last night. Yeah. So few people know that that movie is almost shot for shot, scene for scene, a black and white French film called The Bicycle Thieves. Uh, <laughs> like they recreate full sequences from this this like classic French piece of cinema and that's I, I i think of al in that same lens right like al can make a goofy song like dare to be stupid but then as we discussed on our episode about it you dig deep into not just the band Devo, you go beyond whip it it's like not only is this a goofy fun song but he has managed to capture everything that the mission statement of the band Devo represents Mm-hmm. in yeah. his goofy song about Devo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's yeah. layers. And I think there's something fascinating, too, that the crew that he assembled for the band in the early days in what was it, like a a bathroom stall at university or something? <laughs> that, <laughs> That's where he did his earliest recordings, yeah. That, yeah. that this band that he assembled then to do that type of work has 
matured into really really exceptional musicians like that yeah what a weird opportunity to to grow yeah, bermuda, right? <laughs> bermuda schwartz went from banging an accordion case to probably being one of the most diverse drummers in music yeah. Like, <laughs> and and as we also love to say he's got the same band he, all, all these years he has been doing this now spanning i think it just was established he spans five decades as a recording artist and and uh he has the same band for the most part with he added a player but otherwise it's been the same guys who've been with him forever which really just speaks to his mm-hmm. his talent and his character mm-hmm. um i mean some of the most successful bands in the world can't pull that off yeah and he just added a keyboard player to free up his own hands yeah so he had more time to throw his arms in the air (laughs) he wanted an extra so a little more help that was all so what was it about uh about weird al that made you guys decide to to sit down and say you know what we should do is we should record 150 episodes of a podcast for the the next three or four years of our lives what was the inspiration Um, and commitment level like why did you think wow let's do this i'll field this one okay Uh, yeah you got it so so i do a podcast called one hit thunder and one of the very first episodes of One Hit Thunder we did was on Teenage Dirtbag by Wheatus. And uh, by random happenstance, Matt at over there heard the episode and was like, oh, I'd love to be on this podcast to talk about Devo. Uh, so we did a Devo Whip It episode together, became fast friends. We stayed in touch. Uh, and during the pandemic, Matt would pass the time uh, by going on Twitch and doing like 12 to 15 hour performances of a band's full discography. Okay. So he did he did every Weezer song in order of release on Twitch and then after that he did every Weird Al song on Twitch. And I thought it was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So that kind of like sat in my brain. And then the origins of Weird Algorithm were literally I was going to Starbucks and I was and I was in the drive-through at Starbucks and I was listening to Polka Party by Weird Al which is probably his least discussed album. Um, <laughs> definitely one of his lowest selling albums. And this song came on Dog Eat Dog on that album, which is like a standout track in an album that no one really talks about. And I thought it is such a shame that nobody really knows this song that well. Uh, and I was like, I always, that's always how it starts. The, the One Hit Wonder podcast literally started from me listening to Sean Colvin's album, and being like, this album's amazing. People should know more about her than just Sonny Came Home. Um, I was like, how do, how do we do a podcast about this? I was like, well, what if we did a podcast where we literally went through every single song on every single album in order of release and like gave them a very sincere, critical lens. And then immediately I thought of Matt's Twitch stream. And I was like, well, that's, if Matt will do it with me, then I'll do it because I would, I kind of hit my wall on hosting podcasts. Um, <laughs> but this one was like too good to like put to the side. Uh, and thankfully Matt was like very quickly on board. And now we're, I think we're getting closer. Well, we're about a year and a half into the show. We're about to start recording the nineties era of Al, which is when him and I became fans. Yes. Uh, so it's 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 wild and and then it just kept building you know like it started with we're just going to discuss the songs and then it was like well we we have to talk about uhf and then the weird the al yankovic story came out and it's like well we can't not talk about that and then someone remembered that the complete al was a thing and then next thing you know we're watching family feud episodes that al was just a contestant (laughs) like it was like 
it's like, all right, if we're gonna do this, let's be as as fully covered as possible. So much so that I think that when we get to weird the Al Yankovic story, which you know, as of right now, is the end of the show. A lot can happen before we get there in the recording, but that's kind of the most the last big Al Yankovic anything. Our friend and frequent co-host gave Matt a flash drive of every like unreleased deep cut weird Al yeah. song that he oh, could wow. find. So it's like, all right, well, maybe we have to dig through that flash drive and make sure that there's nothing that we missed on that as well. So. I mean, we're going to try to make sure that our show, there's a lot of great shows out there that did what we did. There's the Weird Alphabet. Um, mm -hmm. I always blank on the guys' names, but uh, the 2,000-inch TV podcast. Um, uh, yeah. But, Dave and Ethan, I believe. Yeah, right, Dave yeah. and Ethan's 2,000-inch TV. But uh, I, I really hope that, like, when all is said and done, when we walk away from doing Weird Algorithm, that people will be able to kind of look at it as, like, a time capsule of, like, this is this is the true complete owl. Like yeah. this is every single notable thing that ever happened in his career, no matter how small. So yeah. and 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 just to you're, that's was perfect, Matt. But just to expand on the one thing, like when I did the live stream and I learned how to play all those songs, I've always been an owl fan ever since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And the play along thing was really just you know my version of losing my mind in the pandemic and trying to figure out how I could perform alone at home. And but it was just personal challenge. And I thought of Al because I was like, when who better to cover where I am learning like the pop songbook mm -hmm. yeah, while, while doing this? Like I'm learning every <laughs> Al song, but I'm also just learning all of these different eras of music. Um, and it was such an incredible challenge. And, and I already was a huge fan and it made me respect him and his players so much more to realize just how much they cover. And I didn't. I wouldn't have thought of the podcast, but when Matt came to me, he was like, "Do you want to do this?" I was like, "That's the perfect culmination because what I learned was just how unbelievably talented these guys are. Like, forget about the comedy. I mean, I love to talk about the comedy yeah. of it all, and we're going to talk about that today with this insane song we're about to talk about. But, um, uh, but yeah, the talent and the skill behind these players is it just blew my mind, and and the fact that it's just some people are just like, oh yeah, that's funny." Like, no, you don't get it. It's so much more <laughs> yeah. than just funny. It's like an incredible, like, statement and performance art piece. And he is, uh, you know, like, um, Al and his band are just, like, really a singular presence in the world. There's no one you could really even compare them to. Oh, yeah. No. It's yeah. amazing. They yeah. basically invented an art form. I mean, it existed, but not at this level. No. That he no. chose to take it to. He's the, the king of the mountain, isn't he? He's yeah. <laughs> top of the hill. yeah. And there'll never be another. And so mm. many have tried. Mm. <laughs> like, so many have tried. Oh, you uh, can go on TikTok right now and see a lot of people who are trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to varying degrees of success. I think you make a great point in terms of, like, the time capsule. But I remember, you know, I might. I think the first song I ever heard, somebody brought in the Off the Deep End album to school. And we mm. heard, uh, for some reason, we played um, Can't Watch This was played to the classroom, which is awesome. And so yes. had to go find that. I might have bought that album from my buddy. I don't know how I came mm. to it, but that was the first one. And so, yeah, the, you know, 92, 93, et cetera, those are the albums that I really came to. But I remember having to go to, like, every time we went to a music shop, digging through the the, uh, the list to find what albums did they have, because you know there were other ones. But it was hard to find, you know, get your hands on the original yeah. or to get Polka Party. Those weren't easy to find. <laughs> and so, yeah. You had no, a really for a time for period where you had to go flipping through the bins at your local CD shop and hope you got lucky. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I remember doing that in 
seeing something in there be like i didn't even know this existed yes yes yeah. this album yeah how exciting it was yeah and again i i love uh can't watch this that's again talk about a time capsule yeah that album <laughs> that has parodies of uh mc hammer and um <laughs> new kids on the block i've fallen and <laughs> yeah. i can't and get nirvana, up and nirvana <laughs> yes it all and, like like yeah. what a what a moment in time musically yeah yeah for it's, sure it's very interesting because yeah i think matt and i have a similar story in the sense i think we both discovered al through amish paradise okay yeah so so for me it was like i heard i saw the music video on the box yeah and was like what is this and then um literally a kid on my bus's brother had already bought the album uh so so they made me a cassette tape of the album nice. like before any other single had come out and i remember listening to that cassette tape on the bus ride home and just like every single act being like this is the craziest thing i've ever heard <laughs> and then yeah. it was like immediately like i i there was a two three year period in my life where there was a used cd store directly behind my house which was like the most dangerous place <laughs> that a used cd store could exist and i bought a vhs tape of all of his music videos and then that was just like my that was my roadmap i i was like all right i need to find the albums where every single one of these videos came from right on uh and that that was how how i got sucked into it i know you start now we never really dove too deep in this i know you started with amish paradise but like where where did that lead? <laughs> I, I was just thinking about, because you were telling the story about you seeing the video on the box. I don't remember how I heard it. <laughs> I, I wish I could. I, I have no memory of like what the intro was. I just, but the thing I remember was that I heard the song and I was like, it was one of the first moments of my life where I heard, heard it and I was like, I need more of this. Like <laughs> yeah. right now, I need more of this. Uh, and again, as you just said, like at that, that point in time, that was harder to do. I was the oldest. I didn't really have like, um, I didn't have older cousins or siblings or anything like that to help me with this stuff. So I was kind of on my own. And of course my parents like took me to a store and I just, I, I did get the, uh, the bad hair day CD was given to me as a gift for finishing like the fifth grade or whatever, whatever time it was. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I remember just being blown away. Like, you know, it's at that time, like, I still think a kid now would have the same experience. Like at that age, you're just like, I didn't know. I didn't know it could be that clever. I didn't know yeah. something like this existed at all. And it was this incredible door opening. And I just remember then trying to devour as much as I possibly could and picking up compilations and best ofs. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Matt was really good at getting the albums, it seems. And I was way more like, I just got whatever I could grab, which were, I now know to be like compilation records that Al hated because yeah. his label pushed them out <laughs> and were not, uh, it, it was not his, you know, vision at all for his music. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was just, uh, you know, an amazing, amazing period of discovery. I remember those years so fondly of hearing all this type of music. And again, I, I had no one, like, I think Matt, you, you knew more about nineties radio at the time. I didn't know, like my first exposure to Al has a song on bad hair day called the alternative polka. Where mm -hmm. he he does like these quick polka covers of like Beck and uh, Nine Inch Nails and Green Day and uh, just tons and tons of, and that was my first exposure to most of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. see, and, I was I once I discovered once my cousin introduced Green Day into my life and I learned that there was a thing called alternative radio and yeah. an MTV like I. 
every second that I could. I was either listening to the radio or watching MTV and just like taking in all of all of that. I can't wait for us to get the alternative polka episode. I know, That's I know. gonna be like a two hour episode. <laughs> yeah. And and again, you know, like it's the way that you the way that I remember these things might not be totally true, but the way it feels in my mind is it mm-hmm. was this moment of like I was the kid who went home and watched, you know, Doug on yeah. Nickelodeon yeah. and Rugrats and all that stuff. And all of a sudden I get bombarded with polka music of like grunge. it was like this incredible like mind-blowing eye-opening experience of just like what is all of this yeah um and it was yeah i mean again not to be too uh too over the top about it but that's truly life-changing stuff like i I mean he he shaped my musical taste in a way that i would have never thought when i first heard amish paradise how much he would have like dug a burrowed into my brain all these different like artists that he clear like al clearly loves Mm -hmm. and respects that's why he he parodies them um, it, it was, yeah, like fundamental in shaping, like who I became as a, as a music lover and a person. Yeah. I was gonna say, I, I relate in a way. I remember, uh, in the nineties, uh, waking up every morning, we listened to 104.5 Chum FM with Roger Rick and Marilyn in the morning. And it was like adult contemporary hoodie and the blowfish, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, Whitney Houston, etc. It was fine. But, uh, you get this album and it's like Baskin Robbins and you get samples yeah. of yeah. all kinds of stuff from all these different genres. And I didn't know what alternative music was, but yeah, it pulls you in. You, you get to, uh, smells like Nirvana and, yeah. uh, and you go, well, obviously it's catchy. It's obviously mm-hmm. a tune you want to listen to more of. And maybe when you're that age and you listen to Nirvana for the first time, you go, eh, I don't know what I'm getting into here. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> like the Bleach album wasn't a good starter for, uh, for maybe a 14 year old, but <laughs> that's all <laughs> but uh, but you do get into it and you start to discover more and more and uh, it certainly opens your mind up to looking for new things you perhaps didn't know were there so I can relate in a lot of ways that uh, totally it pulled me out of adult contemporary although I could share at the at the drop of a the first beat I can name you quite a few songs <laughs> from the 90s oh, I, mean, I, I love some good adult contemporary yeah. honestly 90s I, adult contemporary was top-notch in my yeah. eyes and you just mentioned the first concert I ever saw in my life was Hootie and the Blowfish yeah. at Madison Square Garden. So I'm right there with you. I'm right. I there think with the you. last was... concert I paid to see was Hootie and the Blowfish. Really? It was Bare Naked Ladies opening for Hootie and the Blowfish. There you during go. During the uh, Cracked Rear View 25 year anniversary tour, or whatever it was. That would have been a cool show. <laughs> it was a great show. Bare Naked Ladies, I actually think, put on a better live show, but Hootie definitely sounded better, okay. sounded tighter. Um, so I talked about that VHS tape ironic thing about that vhs tape the music videos were not in order of release uh okay in fact they put the most recent videos that he had put out at the front which means that the video kicked off with jurassic park nice which is what brings us here today uh a song (laughs) that i don't think i appreciated as a kid but loved the bizarre music video yes yes Uh, but i had no reference point i didn't know MacArthur park like no yeah he pulled that one out of what 1969 (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well you know it's funny so i did a little bit of uh you know we have not gotten to this i'm really excited to talk about this because this is the first time we've jumped ahead We've been talking about his songs in order, and not that we're terribly far from Alapalooza, but we're still, like, an album behind, so um, we're not going to talk about this song on our show for, I don't know, a few months. It'll be, like, March. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Um, And uh, he notes, so uh, for listeners of your show who might not be as familiar with Al's career, a very early song that he did was he did a song called Yoda, 
that was a parody of Lola by the Kinks. And uh, at the time, that was very old. You know, Al generally likes to parody songs that are current and of the moment. Mm -hmm. But he heard, he thought Lola, Yoda, it was just too good of a fit. He's doing this. And for this song, he had said that that was an idea he wanted to revisit. Like, what if I take something very current, Jurassic Park, yeah, and merge it with something really, really retro and uh, and pull something from it? I'm, I'm surprised he did it because there's also, like, he has talked at great length about, like, the process of doing Yoda was incredibly difficult for him because <laughs> he, yeah. he had to get permission from the kinks and from George Lucas and all of the people, like, it was a very, like, legally challenging, and of course, at the time, it's been, what did we say, Matt, it took him, like, five years to get permission well, yeah, to he, do Yoda. he started playing it in 1980 when Empire Strikes Back first came right. out, and even then, the song Lolo was, like, three or four years old. Like, it was, yeah. it was a 70s song, and then, yeah, it wasn't until 85, almost 10 years after Lolo was released, and the Star Wars trilogy was done, yeah, <laughs> like uh, he he finally was able to make enough of the pieces on the board come together, and a lot of it was we ended up learning just random happenstance of bumping into one of the kinks and That's being right. like, and basically being like, "Why won't you let me do this?" <laughs> yeah, and they, and were, then like, they were no like, "No one yeah. ever told us about it." Yeah, it was just their <laughs> management was saying no on their behalf. Um, so, so I'm surprised in a way it's cool that he actually even tried to do this again. Cause from his own stories, the Yoda Lola thing was a nightmare, mm -hmm. but at this point in his career, I guess he has developed more clout at that point. He's a kid, you know, he's yeah. a kid going like, can I make fun of your song? And people are like, who the hell are you? Yeah. And now he has established himself and everyone, generally speaking, everyone knows who Al is at this point in his career. So it must've been a lot easier. I did see, he did of course have to get permission from Obviously, he had to get permission from uh, uh, Jimmy Webb, who wrote MacArthur Park. Um, but then he had to get permission from Michael Crichton and from Spielberg uh, because of the imagery used in the video. Like, mm -hmm. all of these things were there. Like, and then all the way down to the album cover. Like, this was quite a process. A lot of people had to okay this in order but to But then he it does it again. Like, like, you have to think about it. Like, if this was the second time... Then we get the American Pie Star Wars Saga thing begins. in yeah in 1999. That's right. And we get the Billy Joel Spider Man one in uh, I want to say it's the mid 2000s. So yeah. like I think this was the one because the other big thing is that Yoda was never released as a single. It became a fan hit or whatever. But this right. was I think this was the lead single off of Alapalooza. Yes. So yes, that's correct. Yeah, so, I mean, it must have worked well enough that he felt more confident that he could repeat that that move a couple more times. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, every time I think about this song and I think about MacArthur Park, I actually, my only reference point to the song MacArthur Park for years, until I finally was like, let me listen to this yeah. damn song. <laughs> I, I literally had never heard it. Um, was that in, there's an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza is trying to replace a statue that he broke as a child. And the story of how he broke the statue was that he was using it as a microphone to sing MacArthur Park in the living room. <laughs> and he said, when I got to the, I'll never have that recipe again, I got too overzealous and dropped the, the statue and broke it. <laughs> and I was like, what is this song about? Uh, and then I listened to it and it's about nothing. It's nonsense. It's the most nonsensical song imaginable to yeah. me <laughs> I, I think this is a strong candidate for like 
a rare moment where Al's parody is less weird than the original. <laughs> I think I think I think he has normal Al this song, um, I, because like MacArthur Park is an unbelievably strange song, like one of the most unlikely. I actually had to check myself. Oh, so it was written by a guy named Jimmy Webb, who's a songwriter. It was originally performed by Richard Harris, yeah, um, on his record and. It was re-recorded. It's been covered a few times, but Donna Summer had a huge disco hit with it um, in the late 70s, I guess that was. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And uh, But even the Richard Harris version wasn't a bonafide hit. So this song, as crazy as it is, that is about a cake melting in the rain, has been a hit multiple times. I mean, it... it, it I, I, I like to think about, like from the music industry perspective, right? You have all this, this is like the world that I live in for the most part. And there's so much talk about like, oh, you gotta make sure that you do certain things to have a hit. You gotta like hit certain parameters. You gotta do things a very specific way because people will not stand for X, Y, Z. If it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. If it's too long. But that's just so not true because this song was a hit and anyone who could ever hear this in a vacuum would be like, well, you have made every mistake. <laughs> nothing, yeah. nothing about this song screams hit song. It is this crazy. song. This song, according to Wikipedia, has been covered over 194 times That's by amazing. different artists. Wow. Like the Four Tops had a top 40 hit with it. Like so many people. Wailing Jennings had a hit with it. That's amazing. Like, the amount of people who heard something in this song. You're right. This is the mo- Al's version. MacArthur Park makes more sense as the parody of Jurassic Park. I know, right? It absolutely <laughs> does. I mean, you can certainly appreciate why you can certainly appreciate why Al was drawn to it, right? Cuz yeah. this is just a crazy weird piece of music and I totally get again why you said like this is he has pulled this from out of nowhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Way back in time. Of course, MacArthur Park, Jurassic Park, it's a great and natural, it makes sense right away, right? You can see where he got it. But like to pull this song from from decades past and be like, yeah, I'm gonna use this as a as a parody material. Um I mean cert- certainly I did not know, like I heard Al's version of this before yeah, I ever heard yeah. any of the yeah. originals. Yeah. It's it's almost uh to use the comedy phrase, it's almost like a hat on a hat. You know what I mean? Like it'd <laughs> yes. be like It'd be Absolutely. like Al doing a parody of Tiptoe Through the Tulips by Tiny Tim. Like, what more <laughs> What more could you possibly do with that song yeah. beyond what's already there? Now, I looked um, it up. I looked up uh, if he grew up in Linwood, which I believe to be true. Yes. That's only yeah. like 15 miles from MacArthur Park. So maybe there's... Oh, I'm sure he went to MacArthur Park. Maybe there's a, a personal sure. relationship or, or it's just more familiar than certainly you're, it was to us. You're watch. probably right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, the uh, Los Angeles connection there. He might have felt some some affinity for it in that that way as well. Yeah, it's true. But so I don't know if that was there. He must have been in a rush because if the film comes out in June, I think everybody knew it was going to be a giant hit. He was recording it already by July, so he was in studio arranged wow. recording, which is tremendous because this is in terms of an instrumental piece uh, got a lot of pieces in it. <laughs> and uh, so so you're tapping into something right now that here's a spoil. <laughs> Here's a little spoily for uh, <laughs> your listeners. Alapalooza is often the album I say is my least favorite sure. Weird Al album. And a, and a large reason of it is kind of what you're saying right now. I, don't, I would never call Al a sellout in any way, shape, or form. But Alapalooza feels like the closest he's ever come to a sellout in the sense of so many of the songs to me feel like they are either 
desperately hoping that this thing is a success. So he's doing the Bedrock Anthem just before the Flintstones movie comes out. He's doing this Jurassic Park one, like, right as that movie's coming out. It's got a rejected theme song for Talk Soup as a single. Like, there's just a lot of... It feels like there's so much, like, I'm just taking big swings. And the last time he did that was Polka Party, and it was a lot of strikes because he was taking Mm -hmm. those swings in a very short period of time. So... I, I mean, I'm interested. I have not listened to this album from front to back in years. So I'm very excited when we get to it on the podcast to see if, if my feelings have softened a little bit. But what you're saying is part of why I don't love Alapalooza that Feels much. Feels a little rushed. And, and, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, and, it came out very quickly after Off the Deep End. Yeah. In comparison to from that point on, it's like three to sometimes six, seven-year gaps in between albums after Alapalooza mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things we talk about a lot on our show is that a huge part of what Al has to do to make his craft work is he has to be really, really incredibly wizard-like in his song selection, right, of what he chooses to parody. If you look back at his career, his ability to have in the moment correctly picked what would become huge songs that stood the test of time mm-hmm. is amazing. <laughs> like, like very, very few absolute misses where you hear a song, you're like, no one remembers, like, again, no one remembers, like, Rico Suave. <laughs> yeah. Taco Grande, that was, okay, so not, not quite, Al. It didn't really hold up in the same way. But for the most part, he picks really, really smart things. There are moments where you get the sense where he was just like, I need to pick something that I know is going to work. And that's a moment where he does something like Jurassic Park. He's gone back to MacArthur Park. It's tried and true. I mean, it's not in the charts at that moment, but he at least knows that the song is going to resonate with a certain group of people. Add to that Jurassic Park. And in terms of his formula, it's as close to a guaranteed hit as he's going to get. Because if he parodies a song, we talk a lot about he did a parody of um, the song Ruthless People by Mick Jagger. Uh, And... The, that song became a flop and by the time uh, the, the original version was a flop and by the time Al recorded it he knew it was a flop but he had already gotten permission from Mick Jagger and he didn't have the heart to say no <laughs> after <laughs> the fact imagine? and that's the dangerous game of what he does right like if it doesn't if it doesn't stick he's stuck with a, a parody of a song that no one knows what he's talking about mm-hmm. yeah yeah so speaking to to how this album felt a little rushed like he would have the movie would have come out and he would have therefore picked the song, done the arrangement, and then had the video. Like, he didn't have a song to really launch the album with, right? He didn't have the video yet. And that we're talking, yeah. this is in July, he doesn't have it. And it releases in October, which he must have been very anxious about. I, and in terms of it feeling rushed and, like, put together in a little bit quick, I remember going through the liner notes, sitting in the back of the car, driving home from the mall with my folks and I got the uh, the cassettes uh, jacket open and I'm reading the liner notes and it's uh, you know it's kind of silly looking and stuff like that and I see bohemian raps uh, peri- uh polka and I remember having the weird uh, okay, sorry yeah. the Wayne's World soundtrack from the year before and I'd listen you know ballroom blitz listen to tail off of that the extended version of the Wayne's World theme yeah. listen to you know until the ribbon burned out and then bohemian rhapsody had such a rebirth then and I was like I yes. so the polkas are always such a wonderful fun thing and then it was just yeah. verbatim bohemian rhapsody <laughs> with polka music and i was yeah i was a little disappointed and i remember well not knowing macarthur park i was like i've never heard this song this isn't 
appealing musically necessarily at, at, at first blush. And I was like, oh, I don't, and so the, the album did kind of start off on a cool note. <laughs> it started off yeah, cool in a way. Considering that the last record he made, I mean, he did have other singles from off the deep end, but Smells Like Nirvana, I mean, he could not have parodied something cooler, right? Yeah. Like no. that is like the most hot thing in the world. And he is parodying it in a way that is like super, super cool. Yeah. This is the dorkiest choice. <laughs> This like is so, it's so nerdy and it's so the complete polar opposite. I mean, yeah. even again, like you said, Bohemian Rhapsody had a return too, but like these are like, yeah, he is not. And again, I don't say this as an insult at all, but like Al's rarely attempts to be cool. Yeah. Uh, he clearly is following his own sort of path. And again, as you said, Matt, like whether or not it's a, an attempt to, you know, hop onto the bandwagon of, of a train that's leaving the station. Like, mm -hmm. I think he's always in a battle where he's like, I want to do something that's interesting to me. Maybe that's where we're at with this song, really. He's like, I want to do something that's interesting to me. And what's interesting to Al is MacArthur Park. But what's interesting to the record company that's trying to make a oh, ton yeah, of money yeah. <laughs> is him having a vehicle that they can really push and that's going to send a lot of, uh, of uh, record sales their way so he's always in that battle of like i want to do this thing that's like cool and fun and counterculture and interesting to me but at the same time there's well, there's profit to be had another another thing that's kind of interesting about alapalooza and i don't know if this has ever happened before or again um but at alapalooza when when he was recording off the deep end he had written all of the alapalooza originals as well so mm. much so that Waffle King was supposed to be on Off the Deep End. Mm -hmm. But what happened was he was looking at I Was Only Kidding, and he, he there's one line in that song where he says, I love you, not. <laughs> and he was, he was genuinely worried that a Wayne's World reference would seem dated if it waited another year. So he swapped those two originals, but... I think it's kind of interesting. Again, Matt, we're we're kind of in a similar boat as with with Alapalooza as we are currently when we're recording the UHF episodes, where it makes you wonder. All right, he had all these originals. Did all of the parodies essentially just be like, we have to fill out this album, mm -hmm. like we can't release an album of all originals, uh, and and that's why I do think that like. Like, when I think about what I like about Alapalooza, it is the... I mean, Frank's 2000-inch TV is, like, truly one of the best originals. One of my favorites. Incredible song. Absolutely. Incredible yeah. song. Yeah. Um, but, the, but you're right. The polka is... It, it, I like hearing it different, but it's not as inspired or crazy as, like, listening to him play 20 different songs in five minutes <laughs> seamlessly. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and the parodies all kind of don't scratch the itch as strongly. I actually think... The older I get, the more I appreciate what Jurassic Park is. But like, yeah, you know, even the Red Hot Joy Peppers were like, "Hey, man, sometimes <laughs> they're not all home runs." When they heard Bedrock Anthem, like they were just like, "Yabba dabba do now is the best you could come up with for give it away now." Like, so it's it's a very it's a very interesting album in his career. But I do think that of all of the parodies, and I'm thinking of the I think there's only four four or five parodies on it. I think of the ones that are on it, I think Jurassic Park is the most impressively composed one mm -hmm. in, in the lyrical side of things. It, it, it is four parodies. The, the parodies on this record are Jurassic Park, Bedrock Anthem, Achy Breaky Song, and Living in the Fridge. 
I like living in the fridge too. That's a good. And if you call, I mean, you could sort of like Bohemian Polka. It's not a parody. It borders on like it's a single song thing that he did, but um, that's that's a weird outlier for him in in many ways. Actually, it's it's a cover. It's actually as close as he gets to a straight cover. It's a strange, strange one. We'll get into it as well, but uh, theoretically, not sure. Well, Traffic Jam. Uh, has been accused of low-key actually being a parody of Let's Go Crazy that they just say is in the style mm-hmm. <laughs> of Prince. But, I mean, that is that that is as on... That is, like, uh, as close to not legally being a cover. <laughs> what was Let's the Nine Inch crazy. Nails cover, too? The, the Nine Inch yeah. Nails style one. The Germs it? one, yeah. Oh, Germs, that's, yeah, That's yeah. very close to, <laughs> to just being yeah, a medley yeah. of Nine Inch Nails tunes, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to uh, an homage. <laughs> It's true, yeah. Uh, interesting stuff. Well, I um, I think we should get into the the music. Uh, sorry, the music yes. video because there, there's so much to yes. that too. Uh, the first thing when I look at it now and I reflect upon it over, it's almost 30 years now that it's been out. I think of uh, Celebrity Deathmatch, but Celebrity Deathmatch didn't come out until many years later, actually. So um, it does. It that, looks so much like that. But they're very it has familiar. So the, so much of that vibe. So I looked it up too. The claymation team of Mark Osborne and Scott Norland, Nordland were the talent behind the video. And this team also aided in the Weird Al show intro. If you watch the Weird Al show, um, mm-hmm. you, you can't miss the, the, the obviously claymation part that, uh, that, that they would have done. And I think the next tidbit here kind of connects to your show in a really important way. Um, Al reportedly met Osborne and Nordland, these animators, uh, from, uh, he was speaking to a guy named Bill Manspeaker, the lead of Green Jelly. Yes. And nice. uh, you guys make a lot of remarks about how punk rock Al's early sensibilities were. You make an excellent case yeah. for it. The entire practice of parodying professional works, satirizing beloved cultural conventions is really the essence of that, that sort of punk rock messaging and so it, you know is it any surprise that weird al has some sort of relationship with green jelly uh of which I'm, i really only know their three little pigs tune but uh he spent so much time parodying all types of genres do you suppose that he really was like a grunge or a punk rock fan relative to, to anything else he might be listening to absolutely I, yeah i think so actually i may have i'm trying to remember this correctly but there's a podcast that we're both like friendly with uh, called Krista Makes a Podcast. Okay. Uh, it's hosted by Krista Makes of the band Less Than Jake. And each week he sits down with a different musician and talks to them about their whole career or whatever. And he had Bill Manspeaker on from Green Jelly. And I am almost confident that the story that he told was that so when Green Jelly at the time, Green Jello, was a band their whole thing was that they would never release an album they were strictly a music video band and nothing else and they the record label was like that's brilliant and he's (laughs) like so they had this budget to work with and they just kept making these cheapo music videos but the fan favorite song was three little pigs and they wanted to do something special with that because all the other ones are like them with puppets and i want to say that Mark Osborne was Bill Manspeaker's next door neighbor, and he was like a 15 year old kid <laughs> who just had an interest in claymation. And he was like, he's like, we had like $500 left in the budget to make this this music video, which like $500 to most people means nothing, but to a 15 year old, that's like more than enough money yeah. and he's like so i think that was his break was that at like 15 16 years old 
he by himself with his friend, like him and his friend made a six minute claymation music video for green jelly. So that's insane. I, I did until you mentioned the Bill Man speaker thing, I did not piece it together. I obviously, when I watch it, I connect it to Will Vinton, um, who did, you know, the California Raisins, and he did a lot of stuff like that. And he actually had a VHS tape that I got from the Scholastic Book Fair called <laughs> Dinosaur, a fun-filled trip back in time. And it was a kid listening to a radio, and there was a song about a dinosaur, and then it just, like, cuts to... It's Fred Savage plays the kid. Okay. Uh, and... And then he goes as he does. Yeah. Yeah. This claymation (laughs) stuff about dinosaurs. Um, But the dinosaur effects look very similar. I'm sure that Al was combining his love of, you know, uh, of Jurassic Park and all that stuff. But also there's no way Al's not a Will Vinton fan. Like Mm. just knowing the, the kitschy weird offbeat stuff that he likes. I'm sure he had seen, even if he hadn't seen this specific VHS tape that I'm talking about, um, the the claymation Christmas special is hosted by two claymation dinosaurs. Okay. And I'm sure that that was probably in his brain somewhere where he's like, claymation dinosaurs, that's the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, just real quick, also just one, we were talking before about how he had to hustle to get this done, yeah. and it does also make sense. This removed it from Al. He was. This is the first video Al has ever released that is animated, completely animated. Al is not in it. Yeah. And I think they were really trying to get this done as quickly as they possibly could. I saw a note here that said that um, Mark Osborne and Scott Nordland had to sleep in shifts. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? To get to get yeah. this done in time, because again, stop motion is not a quick <laughs> no form no. to work in. But it looks so, it looks incredible. amazing. It looks amazing. It's- they did such a good job, um, but it must have been like Al was making the track. They knew this was happening. They're like, "All right, here's what we got. You got it. We have to have it done by this date. Um, so do whatever you whatever it takes to get it done." And Al was finishing his record so that it all could happen yeah. at once. You know, and he had it's the big video. Worth, yeah, yeah. It's also worth remembering '93. We've already had a couple years of Primus dabbling in claymation True. in their music videos True. as well. Yeah, um, they definitely got more claymation in the later 90s but there are elements of claymation that show up mm-hmm. in um jerry was a race car driver for sure has a claymation sequence in yeah. it and i want to say there was one other one obviously then you get the tales from the punch bowl and man do they love like southbound pachyderm is just like a seven minute All claymation, claymation yeah. <laughs> but, yeah it was a good era for that for that art form yeah that's yeah, for sure i i'm i am a i've said this a million times on other podcasts i am a stop motion fan i will watch Ray Harryhausen 60s sword and sandal movies all day because I just think it is such an interesting art form when you are good at it. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. seen bad claymation too, but good claymation is like unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, stylistically, when you look at the dinosaurs, they didn't look like they were trying to replicate what the film did. No, no. What they really, but there's, are you familiar with the Topps trading cards? They had a thing, a series called Dinosaurs Attack. Yes. And it was very similar to the trading cards Mars Attacks, <laughs> which were very similar to like the Garbage Pail Kids. And there's just something gory and gross and silly and, uh, and awful. <laughs> and I think that translates really 
specifically in this video. Like, there's a ton of really cartoon violence. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of blood and guts. that you It's like spinal cords, and it's just full of it. I had forgotten before, like, re-watching the video for this, I forgot how, again, it's claymation, so to call it gory is a stretch, but it is gory. Like, there are intestines <laughs> hanging out of people. Like, uh, he is, the T-Rex is biting heads off, and people are being, like, severed. It, it is, it's rough. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's claymation, so you just laugh at it, but Al throughout his whole career has had a real like interesting fascination with violence mm. and that's again a perfect intersection for him here of a song about dinosaurs killing people is right in his uh in his sweet spot so uh, the video leaning into it is no uh no real surprise to me i yeah i also think just throwing this out there looking at the lyrics and we know that something similar happened with the saga begins that Al had to write the saga begins based on internet rumors and and like a rough idea. And then like right before the song came out, he was allowed like a special screening just to see yeah. if you need to touch up the stuff. Honestly, minus two or three lines, he's very vaguely talking about Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Almost as if a person who had heard a friend tell some tell them about Jurassic Park would. You know what I mean? Like the only stuff so I recall the time they found the fossilized mosquitoes and before long they were cloning DNA. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now I'm being chased by some irate velociraptors. Believe me, this has been one lousy day. Anyone could have told him, hey, there's going to be some angry velociraptors in <laughs> this movie. Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark. All the dinosaurs are running wild. Didn't need to know anything about the movie. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's what it's about. Someone shut the fence off in the rain. That's not actually what... What happens in the movie, technically? Uh, I admit it kind of eerie. It proves my chaos theory, and I don't think I'll be coming back again. The only other line that is tied specifically to the movie and not something that he would have found from, like, reading the book is the, I cannot approve of this attraction because getting disemboweled always makes me kind of mad. A huge Tyrannosaurus ate our lawyer. Well, I suppose yes. that proves they're really not all bad. That is the, the line about the lawyer is the only thing that is specifically tied to the movie and not, and not the, book. the book. Yeah. And not the book. You make an interesting point about someone shut the lights off in the rain and it was Nedry. Nedry, yeah. Nedry hatches the scheme, but to reset the damages that he did, it was Arnold who had to turn off the power. So you make a very interesting yeah. point that he didn't quite get that <laughs> right. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Was uh, <laughs> That's when the power goes out. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But then, yeah, the rest of it is just vagalities. You know what it I mean? Is. Like, someone let the T-Rex out of its friend. I'm afraid these things will harm me. They don't act like Barney, and they think that I'm their dinner, not their friend. Um, what a crummy weekend it's been. Well, this sure ain't no e-ticket. I think I'll tell them where to stick it, because I'm never coming back this way again. Like, none of that is really... No. Yeah. There's, there's only about four lines in the whole song that are specifically about the movie the yeah. plot points in the movie and the rest is i i think that he wrote this before he saw the movie or even I, 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 he, he had definitely read the book i know he yeah. had said that like he read the book but at this point yeah you know it's funny you're saying soggy begins like at that point in the early 2000s he had the clout to get an advanced screening now we're at a point where he has enough clout to get permission to do this but maybe not enough <laughs> to see it see the movie ahead mm -hmm. um of everybody else um i don't know i know that again spielberg signed off on it also fun side note you mentioned the barney line we get a nice little barney cameo in <laughs> stop motion and a great little fake steven spielberg yep. in the uh in the claim claymation uh 
montage where the dinosaur starts attacking yeah. the cast of the crew of the movie. I think he's supposed to be um, standing beside Kathleen Kennedy as well. There's I think you're right. There. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether that's yeah, confirmed, no, the, I don't know. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the dinosaur is starting to attack the... Uh, the actual makers of the film is meta in a way that the Jurassic Park movies actually eventually started to become almost yeah. that meta. You make an interesting um, point about how, like, um, the whole idea, this punk rock idea of bringing things down a peg, kind of showing showing things for their frailties or looking at positions of power and satirizing them, uh, yeah. just recapping what happens in the movie very vaguely is not very punk rock. And so I think one of the no. fair criticisms <laughs> of this song is that, you know, it's it's lacking in its bite it doesn't really yeah. you know say anything funny or, or caustic or, or poignant about the film in a way and and that's kind of that takes a bit of the fun out of it you know i think in the saga begins or or at least in yoda yoda they, mm-hmm. he did a very good job about like he almost being as mark hamill say i can't believe i'm locked into this long term i'm gonna be doing this till i'm old and gray yeah. and sure enough he was <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> yoda is we talked about it. We did a very long episode about Yoda because that song is like frighteningly prescient. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and that song really does get into uh, lyrically this like idea of grappling with like art versus commerce Mm -hmm. and, and how these things kind of connect with each other and like the money and the lawyers and all this stuff that goes into it. He does reference lawyers in this song, but, um, but yeah, no, this is more straight. And another thing we talked about on our show before is that you could also look at a lot of what Al does as almost just like an Andy Warhol approach of like, there's just something about taking these two pop culture things that have no business being together and smashing them together. And you have this weird sort of like, uh, the juxtaposition of those two things is just satisfying in, in itself because you're taking, like you're, you're mashing pop culture up and making it your own in a way that it just shouldn't be. Like it's delightful because it's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? And this song does touch that. It's not as punk rock and it's not making a statement in the way that Al, when Al wants to, he can be really biting in his commentary and his satire. Um, and this song is more just uh, a, a, a pop culture hodgepodge mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, taking the weirdest old song he could find. <laughs> it's 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 uh, the, the least risky way to sell as many albums as he could, maybe. That, I, arguably, yes. Arguably, yes. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's it, it, they all don't have to be. We've said before, his sense of humor is, is wonderful in that he is so, he can be so broad mm-hmm. and he can be so subtle when he wants to be. Like, this is a very broad, like, this is just like a... Uh, I, I don't think there's much below the surface of Jurassic Park is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Well, with the song, I think you're absolutely right. He might have been um, required or felt obligated to be tame. But when it came to the video, I don't think that goes. I think that he oh, had no, his chance yeah, to yeah. just go berserk. And it's like it's like Gremlins 2. It's Looney Tunes and puppets <laughs> just making a absolutely. chaos. And he's taken down cultural institutions. He's taken on the 90s. Um that whole uh what do we got here we get a schwarzenegger like character big muscles in a cigar and he's getting thrashed by the dinosaurs he's getting cut to ribbons he's got green blobs on him if you look real carefully like uh like in predator and i I, it's like jurassic park is taking down the terminator you know where this is the biggest movie see you later james cameron which is an interesting angle and i know cameron was vying for the rights to get the film as well so there's a really neat point that he's making there that's right um 
He's talking about WWF I, back when that was still around. The Tyrannosaurus jumping off the turnbuckle. And, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that, with the uh, WWF. The yeah, I, I like that a lot too. And, um, no, and you know what, Matt? I hadn't thought about this, but this is interesting. So, you're right about the song. The lyrics of the song are vague enough that you could have gotten this from a combination of the book and just a plot summary of the movie. The video has a lot more specific references. Mm. Yes. A lot more. Like, they have the joke in this of, like, he shuts the door on the raptor and the raptor pulls out the keys to open it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there's a lot of little, like, jokes. They're, the visual gags in the video are so much more specific I think than that's anything why he I, does in the song. I think that's why, until literally today, I felt like it was a much more direct plot summary of Jurassic mm. Park, but it's more that the video is hitting mm -hmm. a lot more of the sight gags. Mm -hmm. um, than anything else. You know, it's so funny to think about this album. I'm thinking about this album now and Jurassic Park being a, a part of it and all that stuff. But, like, you do have Alapalooza just kind of floating in there in between probably the two albums that he best captured the 90s. You know what I mean? Like, right. off the deep end, undeniably captures what was happening in music in 1990 and 1991 where there was this literal like changing of the guard of like cheesy pop music into grunge mm -hmm. right like because you like you said like rico suave the new kids on the block kind of like faded out but they only faded out because nirvana just like rolled in like a steam engine and just like destroyed yeah. all of that and then off the deep end is capturing all of the things that happened post kurt cobain where you're getting like the rise of gangster rap and you're getting like you mean all the bad bad hair days yeah yeah, yeah, yeah sorry sorry yeah, yeah. bad hair day you're getting the rise of gangster rap you're getting like the art like R&B really blowing up with like TLC mm -hmm. right. but you still have all those like post grunge post nirvana bands in there like Soul Asylum Soundgarden. like everything that's yeah. in in the alternative polka and then just sitting in the middle is like Alapalooza where it's doing parodies of MacArthur Park and Queen um where where it's just kind of and Prince and Peter Gabriel like yeah. this album makes more sense as an 80s Al album than it does it was a transitional time <laughs> I guess point. maybe that's not Al's fault actually maybe yeah. we were just kind of in between uh the trends at that point you know that's probably easier to see now than it would have been at that moment oh, in yeah. time yeah look yeah. everything is much clearer in hindsight <laughs> yeah. of course yeah I think uh, one of the things this video got to do before almost anybody else got a chance to do was take a great big swing at Barney the Dinosaur. I know. I thought oh, yeah. the same thing. Like, there was a moment there where, remember how much people hated Barney? He was... Have you seen my friend's documentary on Peacock? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> my my friend Tommy has a documentary on Peacock called I Love You, You Hate Me. I've heard of and this. it's the history of Barney the Dinosaur. Oh, I mean, it's uh, crazy now to think about how angry people got. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what... That literally the first, it's it's in two parts. The first half is all about the story of like the humble beginnings of Barney and how it came from like this genuine good place. And then you get to the second half of the documentary and it's like colleges literally having burn Barney <gasps> events. And it's like, why? Like what what did this dinosaur for preschoolers do? To a bunch of 18 to 21 year olds. <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't make it's any very sense. very weird. Yeah. He, he's like Justin Bieber in a way. He just got yeah. super cute, super famous, and then, wow, it went way out of control. <laughs> it, hon it honestly makes me nostalgic for a time where, like, that was, we could worry about that. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, that was, the world was simple enough where you'd be like, yeah, we're mad at this card, this children's show. Like, okay, sure. I, the idea of anyone being that mad now seems hilarious, but I guess that's maybe because we've just moved on to mm-hmm. larger issues. But, like, it's I hard to know. appreciate, like, at that time when that video came out, somebody biting off Barney's head and spitting it out was, like, exactly yeah. what the world wanted. <laughs> they were oh, desperate yeah, for absolutely. it at that time. It's, absolutely. It's a shame, too, because I know Al had said, like, so this video, again, a beautifully done video, clearly, like, really, really great it didn't get played very much, apparently, and it's in large part. Al said that he at MTV told him that again, it was the song choice. They oh, were yeah. just like, <laughs> at this moment in time, them like putting playing a parody of MacArthur Park mm-hmm. just did not fit with the MTV uh, uh, audience at the time. In terms uh, of the song, apparently, it did better in other countries. Yeah, and uh, but in America, it didn't. The video got kind of sort of tragically underplayed. I think. I was thinking about the song choice, and I wondered maybe he was rushed a little bit to find one. And it's hard to find a song yeah. that has park in it or rhymes with park. And, like, how do you yeah. come up with it? And maybe that was just what was available. I was trying to think, what else would you maybe use? And I was like, well, Linkin Park wouldn't come out for years. So it wasn't yeah, going to be true. Linkin Park. True. Maybe T-Rex the band? I don't know if you could get a, oh, a yeah. parody off that. That could have been an interesting. But I came some, up with a good one. Sort of... Oh, go. You're familiar with Chicago's Saturday in the Park? Sure. Oh. Yeah. I think there's a lot of room there. <laughs> well, so, so again, though, here's Also not so... a particularly cool choice, but what? I do hear you on it. It's like, I'm not sure if MTV would have Not a very 90s anymore. choice, but it's no, a cool yeah, song. Yeah, you're right, you're right. That would have yeah. worked. No, 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 it is a cool song. Yeah. I, believe me, when I say uncool, I don't mean it's bad. I love that kind of thing. I'm just thinking about MTV at that moment. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah that's right. You can't put you a leather like, jacket was, on Chicago. I like Richard Harris, but Chicago, yeah. Chicago's great. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you're, but it was only MTV that had a problem with it. Yeah. Like, in Canada with much music, much music, it said that it was a massive success sure, over in Canada. Music, yeah. much- and and the box, I mean, the box was great because the box, you, the viewer, control what videos mm-hmm. got played. I forgot so, about like, that, yeah. Was, yeah, so it was very popular uh, on the box. I remember, well, I don't remember that, but I, I remember when Amish Paradise came out, like I said, I saw it on the box, and on the first day that that video came out, I saw it on the box probably 30 times (laughs) it was like every 10 videos someone was ordering amish paradise on the box um matt you look mildly confused are you familiar with what the box was i I am familiar it wasn't something i had access to really but i am familiar yeah it Um, was it was a music video jukebox that you would pay way too much money (laughs) to to order any video that was available for selection (laughs) i was just reminding myself uh there's also, and I, I quite figure out a, it, if this was after the fact or not. I'm looking at the timeline, but this was a big enough track and a big enough moment in time that he actually, Al recorded this song in Japanese. <laughs> and I think this is the only thing, or the first time that Matt and I have seen this actually happen, but Al recorded a version of this that is called Jurashiku Park. That was only available in the Japanese version of Alapalooza, um, which is wild. So mm-hmm. if you ever want to hear Al sing in Japanese. <laughs> I do. Yeah. It, looks, uh, it is up on YouTube. Uh, you can uh, find it there. Um, it's crazy. But yeah, that's like, they really were, I'm not sure if that means it was a hit in Japan or they were anticipating it being a hit in Japan uh, when they had him do that. But uh, they certainly were, they put a lot into this is what I'm really getting at. You know, they really were going for it. Yeah, they, they put, they, there was a lot in here. Uh, the only other thing I want to call out is that I do love the reoccurring gag of every time that they cut to the big, beautiful Jurassic Park gates, there's something <laughs> wrong. 
Um, <laughs> specifically when when I'm assuming it's Mark Osborne's hand just comes into the shot. To oh, to light. light the thing. That's so great. <laughs> Lighting like the votive candle on the side. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. The video is fantastic. I actually really do, like, we've talked before on our show about, like, how some songs work great on their own and some songs, like, you just imagine it with the music video. And this is one that I really think the video adds a tremendous amount mm-hmm. to oh, the track. Like, this, this is, is, yeah, a great this video. This is one of his finest music videos. It's a, it's a great video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um... You're bang on, and this is, and the song needs the video. The video really is. It needs, yeah. That's where the parody. That's where the, the 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 satire. That's where the jokes. Really, most of the jokes are. It's all in that video, and that's and, and the stupid sound effects and yeah, <laughs> there's so much to sound it. Effects. Yeah, no, like we said, this the original song is so weird that this this version, Al's version itself, is like it's normal Al. Yeah, it is just him doing a movie pitch <laughs> to this old timey song. And the video has all, almost all of the jokes are in the video. Like yeah. the lawyer joke is really the, the biggest like yeah. joke of the song. And yeah. Barney. Um, and, and Barney. Maybe, and the Barney yeah. and the Barney line is funny, but like it's very, uh, and uh, you know, another thing like Al loves to, we talk about it a lot, the, um, his, uh, like something horrible is happening and he downplays it. The whole like everyone's being eaten and believe me, it's been a lousy day. Yeah. Like that's just yeah. a classic line of his. He loves to like do the uh, everything's horrible and he's just mildly annoyed. <laughs> Um, so little bits of that, but it's not as just straightforward comedy as a lot of the work he does is. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to tell you, uh, I've been looking forward to this so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been just incredible. I know on your show, you just, uh, released, uh, the UHF commentary episode, which was really good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you're going through the UHF album, which, uh, I can't wait for the biggest ball of twine episode. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Have I'm you recorded that, that yet? We actually have not. No, oh, we're, we're, we'll be recording that this week at some yeah. point. But yeah. It will yeah, take you the rest of the week, yeah. There's a, there's a lot to unpack, a lot to unpack in that ball of twine. I, I, I love that song. I um, One night I was telling bedtime stories to the kids, and I just uh, didn't know what to do. So I just did a, a dramatic retelling of the biggest ball of twine. And they're like, is this a true story? And they're hanging on to every word. And they were like, we got questions about this guy Bernie. What's going on? <laughs> that uh, that's a great tune. I can't wait. So what uh, what do you have coming up in the next little bit on the show? And uh, there's anything else you guys were in, going on with? What uh, what's new? Well, Matt, I'll let you go first because uh, you've got something so much more exciting going <laughs> on in my life. You're going to be in Europe for like the entire fall. Yeah. Well, if any of your <laughs> if any of your listeners are uh, are based in the UK, uh, my band Weedus is doing a a massive tour uh, of the UK this September and October, and even a little bit of November. Um, we are playing every city, so if you look and we're not playing your town, that's really your problem, not mine. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, come uh, if you if you felt like coming to see a, a show, come check it out and talk to me about Al or Jurassic Park or both. Um, and uh, and yeah, and then uh, I'll let Matt talk about. Uh, the the podcast side of things, we do have a lot of uh, man. I'm very excited for the upcoming episodes we we have coming out here because we're starting to really get into some of my favorite era of Al um, over the next few months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're about to do the UHF soundtrack, which is a very uh, probably the strangest, right up there with Peter and the Wolf as like one of the strangest albums you'll find in his entire discography. Uh, so we got that. Um, 
and same with Matt doing Weedus. And if you want to check out Weedus, go into the UK. Uh, if you want to find out about the 10,000 other podcasts that I produce <laughs> and host, go to geekscape.net. Uh, all of them live uh, somewhere over there. But yeah, we're going to be, we're, if this is coming out on Thursday, tomorrow, uh, one of the strangest episodes we've ever had to record, Gandhi 2. Okay. Uh, <laughs> discussing a minute and 30 second sketch. Uh, from the movie UHF that was released as a track on the album. Really interesting call because, boy, does that really need the visual component for the comedy to hit. <laughs> if you're interested in a detailed analysis of Gandhi 2, we have got you covered. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Just tune into our show. Yeah, stay, stay tuned. But, yeah, I mean, I'm right there with Matt where the UHF soundtrack has not ever been one of my, like, all-time favorite albums from al but we are about to like once we get past that dear lord are we about to get into like yeah. what is my golden age al of yeah you know the the off the deep end oh palooza uh, <laughs> bad hair day running with scissors like yeah. there's there's so many good albums in the 90s i think we've decided that we are going to take a break between bad hair day and and running with scissors to review all 13 episodes of the Al Yankovic show that aired on television. Oh, all right. Um, so good. So that'll be a fun little part. Because I don't think, I think I watched it live. I retained none of it. Yeah, so I don't remember this, it at all either. So this is going to be interesting yeah. to revisit. Yeah, we watched that <laughs> with the kids. They, they, re, they love it. And I love it. It's wonderful. Just like you were saying with Paul Rubens, we had an ability to delight adults and children at the same time. Just a... Matt, incredible mm. performances. The, the, yeah. Really good. Not a lot of people do it, and few people do no. it well. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, your next couple episodes. <laughs> Thank you, really you so much for having us. Time. This was really super fun. I, I, uh, I, again, really, really appreciate it. I hope that uh, your uh, Jurassic Park uh, crazed listeners uh, could uh, could get some something out of our <laughs> rambling about Al and his, his very eclectic career. If they don't like Weird Al, they're no friends of mine. How's that? There you go. That's, you heard it here first. I didn't say it. He said it. I said it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. A tremendous thank you to Matt Kelly and Matthew Milligan. That was so much fun. Thank you for coming on the show. This week's text is Almost Paradigm, spanning from pages 380 to 384. In a synopsis, Hammond is uncomfortable with Malcolm's sepsis and leaves for a walk believing that the park is under control now and is safe. On his walk back to his bungalow, he stews over how unfit everyone he'd hired to work at Jurassic Park had been, blaming them all for its downfall and taking no responsibility of his own. Then he hears the roar of the juvenile Tyrannosaurus and panics. Out of fear and anger, he winds up falling down a ravine, landing in a river below with a broken ankle. It turns out that the Tyrannosaur roar is just a recording being broadcast over loudspeakers as Tim and Lex are playing around on the computer in the control room, and there was no danger after all. Characters. John Hammond. Hammond is in the lodge pacing back and forth on page 380. Recall Hammond paced back and forth when he was worrying about how many sauropods might be killed when the Tyrannosaur broke from its containment on page 250. This is a sign that he's worrying, and in both cases, it's that a life may be lost, or, more specifically, his park will be losing value due to death. In this moment, it's Malcolm's death on Hammond's mind. He's filled with anxiety and dread that Malcolm might actually die. Paradoxically, he feels worse because he detests Malcolm so much, as if his death would be a final I told you so, haunting Hammond from beyond the grave. He opens a window to get some fresh air, but is too uncomfortable around Malcolm dying, so he asks Harding if he believes it's safe to go outside again, and believing that it is safe, he does. Next, he turns his reflections upon Gennaro, believing him to be 
an impetuous fool for wanting to burn Jurassic Park to the ground on 381. Hammond believes that would make no difference. In separate vaults at InGen headquarters in Palo Alto, there are dozens of frozen embryos. It would be no problem to grow them again on another island elsewhere in the world. And next time, the problems which befell Jurassic Park would be learned from and improved upon. He believes that this is progress. Then he considers Dr. Henry Wu's contributions. He'd not really been the man for the job. He was obviously sloppy and too casual with the idea of making improvements instead of making real dinosaurs. Recall episode 25, version 4.4. Hammond darkly suspects that Henry was the reason for the downfall of Jurassic Park. Then he considers John Arnold, also ill-suited for the job of chief engineer. At this point in his career, he was tired and a fretful worrier. He was unorganized and had missed important details. Hammond believes it was having a grand vision that was lacking in both of them. Neither shared in his romantic vision to make Jurassic Park a reality. Then he considers Ed Regis. He'd been a poor choice too. Then Harding, an indifferent choice, as if Hammond could have picked anyone else and had recruited, quote, the chief of veterinary medicine at the San Diego Zoo and the world's leading expert on avian care. Obviously, there aren't a lot of choices if you need the world's expert on avian care. So Harding was the only choice, and he didn't like that one either. Uh, then Muldoon. He summarizes, he's a drunk. He's dead set on doing it better next time. He ponders and ambles back towards his bungalow, and he follows a little path running north from the visitor center. He passes a workman and considers, bah, these Tekan workers are uniformly insolent. Geez, even having an island in Costa Rica was a bad choice, he says on 382. Next time, he'll make better choices. Then he gets scared by a broadcast of a recording of the Tyrannosaur Roar and runs, trips, and falls down a hill, breaking his ankle on 382. Upon discovering that the kids are fooling around, which has led to his injury, he's furious, and he admits he was using the kids to manipulate Gennaro. Quote, he only had brought them because he thought it would stop Gennaro from destroying the resort on 383. But turning on the kids saying that they're, they've been nothing but trouble and showing us that he was using children in his scheming turns us against Hammond even more strongly. He doesn't even identify them as his grandchildren in this moment. They're just bratty kids. His heart races and he begins to feel an uneasy shortness of breath. So he calms himself down and sitting in the mud in a ravine, he starts to call for help. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm has fallen into a coma on page 380 since his last outburst. Sepsis has set in on Malcolm's injury and is creating a, quote, ghastly smell of rotten, decaying flesh. But he still murmurs, everything, parrot. But he fades away. He's being administered medicine intravenously. Quote, everything looks different on the other side, whispers Malcolm on 383. When? Sifts. He adds. Paradigm. He clarifies. Harding. Harding monitors Malcolm's medication and pain control as the island's final remaining medical doctor on page 380. He believes that the northern sector of the island has been cleared of dinosaurs and so believes it's safe for Hammond to go out for a walk. Harding leans in closer to hear what Malcolm is trying to say, realizing he's murmuring something about paradigm shifts. Lex Murphy, she and Tim are in the control room pressing buttons on the computer playing different dinosaur calls on 382, and she feels that the trip to the raptor nest would be too dangerous for them to join in on. Tim Murphy, Tim wishes that he could have gone to the raptor nest and visit with the paleontologists as well on 382. They make the roars they're broadcasting sound silly with reverb and sustained features, which is kind of fun. I do that too. Tyrannosaurus, a tremendous tyrannosaur roar fills the air, interrupting Hammond's thoughts and scaring the Tekan workers that Hammond passes into a full sprint. And the shadow of the juvenile tyrannosaur appears to Hammond. It turns out that this was just a recording of the tyrannosaur roar, but it's a fun surprise and one played as a great shock. Uh, this is 
even alluded to just briefly in the previous chapter on episode 59, Under Control, when they performed the animal count, only one of the Tyrannosaurus localities is known, and that would be the tranquilized Rex under the waterfall. The juvenile is still lurking around somewhere. Granted, I'd suggest that the motion sensor would track differently, that the motionless Tyrannosaur tranquilized on the river, where the motion sensors have trouble tracking, would be the Tyrannosaur they can't see, and the juvenile is probably snacking on that dead hadrosaur back in the sauropod paddock that she had her eyes on back in episode 47, The Park. But nonetheless, uh, we have localities. The Lodge. Ham and Malcolm and Harding remain in Malcolm's fresh room on page 380. Recall they relocated to a new room at the beginning of Destroying the World, but it's also in the Lodge too. Outside the Lodge, Hammond goes through the gates of the fence and looks around the park. And in the late afternoon, there is a thin blowing mist. We have the visitor area. As Hammond walks from the lodge to his bungalow, he follows a little flagstone path running north from the visitor center on 381. His bungalow must be north of the visitor center. On the other side of the path is this thick jungle in which there is a hillside down which Hammond falls and finds a tepid little stream at the bottom on 382. And the control room. Lex and Tim are in the control room playing on the computer now on 382. All right, some stylistic techniques. Uh, Crichton uses italics. The characteristic of vision, stresses Hammond on 381, is clearly illustrated as most important through italics as, uh, and also repetition. Real vision is italicized again in the same paragraph. Jesus! On 383 is italicized, thinks Hammond hearing the roar of the Tyrannosaurus. The italics illustrate strong emotion, in this case fear, on Hammond's behalf. The kids! Those damn kids! All of it in italics. Fumes Hammond, realizing that he's been running from nothing this entire time. He had been terrified over nothing. The italics show his fury. Again, they're employed to show terrific emotion. Ellipses. Quote, everything ellipsis. Parod ellipsis on 380 is Malcolm's belabored unconscious murmurings. The ellipsis indicating long pauses. The ellipses also draw our attention to these specific words, which gives Crichton a moment to emphasize how much paradise and paradigm sound alike. Quote, Muldoon was a drunk, ellipsis, on 381, trails off, this ellipsis leaving any further details about Muldoon unsaid, as if one characteristic was damning enough. Quote, we just twist this thing here, ellipsis, on page 382, says Tim, as Crichton pans away from this scene in the control room, as a reveal that the Tyrannosaur roar that scared Hammond is in fact just the kids fooling around. M-dashes, quote, he would not make such obvious mistakes again, M-dash on page 382, where here the endash interrupts Hammond's thoughts, allowing for a tremendous tyrannosaur roar to burst out. Hammond's downfall. The sequence where Hammond escapes the juvenile tyrannosaurus employs a variety of stylistic techniques all connected for the sake of action, adventure, pacing, and to get your synapses firing. First, rhetorical devices. What was a T-Rex doing here? Why is it outside the fences? followed by two fast sentences with loads of details flashing through, heightened and escalated by a colon and a semicolon. First, quote, Hammond felt a flash of rage, colon, and then he saw the Tekken workman running for his life. And Hammond took the moment to get to his feet and dash blindly, ellipsis, followed by, he was plunged in darkness, semicolon, stumbled and fell. His face mashed into wet leaves and damp earth, and he staggered back to his feet, ran onward, fell again, and then he ran more on 382. A bit of a run-on sentence, but for the sake of pacing, emulating Hammond's exertion, it's done well. Again, Crichton employs the, quote, plunged into darkness cliche to spark our imagination, and it continues the trope that Hammond is running blindly. He does not see where he's going. He's unaware of the surroundings. Things are plunged into darkness at least four times in this novel. And then exclamatory sentences. He had panicked, exclamation mark. What a fool, exclamation mark. He should have gone to his bungalow, exclamation mark. He goes to get up, but he's injured. He tests his ankle gingerly, colon, it might be broken, 
on page 382. Here the colon presents the results of his test, that it might be broken, and Crichton puts all kinds of stylistic techniques together to make this action sequence leap off the page and embrace Hammond's panic. It's an illustrative use of many techniques to make a moment vivid in our reading. Rhetorical questions. Quote, and the kids had obviously gotten into the control room and started fooling around, M dash. Now, who had allowed that on 383? Fumes Hammond. Here, the rhetorical device is just showing that Hammond is pointing fingers all over the place. He's dodging responsibility. The M dash in here serves as a bit of a as a bit of a semicolon or a pause in Hammond's thinking, but it could easily have been a period. But the M dash here allows us to read the following comment in a new line or with a fresh breath, and it's meant to be read in a sarcastic tone. Literary techniques. We have dramatic irony. Once we learn that the kids in the control room are playing the recorded roar of the Tyrannosaurus, for a few paragraphs, Crichton employs dramatic irony. We the readers know something that Hammond does not. Why does Crichton do this? I think it's to further humiliate Hammond in front of the reader. He's still terrified and waiting in horror to see what the Tyrannosaur might do on 383. Rhetorical devices show all his worries. What would the Tyrannosaur do had it already gotten the, that workman? He realizes he's holding in his breath in fear. He's making plans on how he'll call for help after waiting for the Tyrannosaur to leave. When he hears the kids squabbling over the speakers about pressing the buttons and making the noises. I believe this pacing is to add insult to injury in this case. Crichton is subtly making an example of Hammond. And in a short while, that subtlety will be exploded. <laughs> but we're not there yet. Motifs. There's uh, the, the ideas of responsibility and safety. There are a bunch of items that illustrate that Hammond is dodging his responsibility in creating Jurassic Park. He's finding scapegoats everywhere he looks, but does not himself feel any responsibility. And, just as Malcolm had warned, that science is meant to be destructive, that it's designed to be harmful. Hammond perceives this as just a natural step in the process. Quote, and if there had been problems here, then the next time they would solve those problems. That was how progress occurred by solving problems on page 383. Quote, and the kids had obviously gotten into the control room and started fooling around. Now who had allowed that? On page 383, fumes Hammond again. Again, everyone who'd known anything about the park controls, who are Nedry, Arnold, and Wu, they're all dead. If Hammond is truly their leader, he should be owning up to that responsibility, but instead he just admits that all their work and their characteristics were insufficient to achieve his vision. So as someone who's ignorant of and defiant towards accepting responsibility at Jurassic Park, we'll see what poetic justice Crichton has in store for John Hammond. It's coming up soon. Discussion section here. Considering whether you could or should. I was just thinking while editing the last episode about Grant's truly unbelievable determination to enter the raptor nest. Once again, it must be stated, this is such a jarring and frustrating element of Crichton's novel because it's so difficult to imagine someone who'd not only do this, but also drag a bunch of people along with him. <laughs> the moments down in the raptor nest are going to bear fruit in terms of concluding some thematic elements for Crichton, so it's narratively useful, but in terms of a realistic plot that characters would do, it remains problematic. But another theme that perhaps drives this forwards is the concept that Malcolm presented his observation that scientists are, quote, focused on whether they can do something. They never stop to ask if they should do something. We get to a moment in the novel where Grant is pushing the characters to do the thing they should do, even though it may be dangerous. They're pushing the limits for the good of the world, which is the antithesis to Malcolm's warning, right? But here's the truth. As we're wrapping up this novel and asking ourselves what's going on and why, there's going to be some conjecture, some guessing, some hypothesizing, and I'm giving my best guesses. To start with, well, 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 Here's a strange thing Crichton does, and I'm going to take a wild stab at why. Here goes. 
This chapter is not only noticeably similar in name to an earlier chapter called Almost Paradise, but Hammond literally misinterprets Malcolm's utterings, inquiring from Harding, hey, did that guy just say paradise? Quote, what did he just say? Something about paradise on 380. Crichton is specifically drawing our attention to the first chapter in the first iteration, Almost Paradise, which is episode 3, if you want to go back and listen, or on page 11 in your novel, well, my novel anyhow. And Crichton is asking us to relate Almost Paradise to Almost Paradigm by these textual clues. So what does that mean? Well, to start, there are two specific differences in the chapter titles. One is Paradise, and the other is Paradigm. In Almost Paradise, the definition we get for what makes Cabo Blanco an Almost Paradise is that it's an unspoiled beach that hadn't been visited by a single person in, quote, several months, we're told on page 16 and 17. What's keeping it from being a true paradise? If paradise is a place that brings us happiness and delight, and this place is almost paradise, what's keeping Mike Bowman from true happiness and delight? Well... He's upset with his wife's manipulations to come to Costa Rica for cheap plastic surgery, and they argued all the way down the road to the beach. Oh, and there's a dinosaur that bites their daughter, Tina. That ruined it, too. So a paradise is an unspoiled location, unvisited by humanity, that provides true happiness and delight. People and dinosaurs spoil this paradise. When they mix, we get bad outcomes. In almost paradigm, the definition we get for what makes paradigm is as follows. Quote, for the last two decades, or rather in the 1960s and 70s, paradigm shift had been the fashionable way to talk about scientific change. Paradigm was just another word for a model. But as scientists, the term meant something more, a worldview. A larger way of seeing the world. Paradigm shifts were said to occur whenever science made a major change in its view of the world. Such changes were relatively rare, occurring only about once a century. Darwinian evolution had forced a paradigm shift. Quantum mechanics had forced a paradigm shift on 384. So this is, these are our, our categories. What makes a paradise? What makes a paradigm? But which paradigm? Which paradigm is shifting? Quote, paradigm shifts were said to occur whenever science made a major change in its view of the world. We know full well from the introduction and then the novel that follows the introduction that Jurassic Park's argument, and specifically Crichton's attention with this novel, is that developments in biotechnology are leading to a paradigm shift. And he's tremendously worried that the scientific climate that biotechnology is being developed in hasn't enough humility before nature, not enough discipline to treat that power that's being unlocked with respect and responsibility. And the themes of irresponsibility and the consequences of being irresponsible are on full display in this chapter with Hammond's reflections upon Jurassic Park. And Dr. Alan Grant represents some of Crichton's arguments for taking responsibility. As he convinces Gennaro to, quote, do the right thing, and instead of slim pickings riding the bomb to hell, Gennaro jumps down a rabbit hole into a raptor nest. That's how you take responsibility, argues this novel. But that's coming up in the next chapter. So why does Malcolm smile? But Malcolm is saying they're beyond paradigm. He doesn't care about anything anymore because everything looks different on the other side and he smiles on page 384. Now, Malcolm is the mathematician who uses models and can see by the shape of the data what the models represent. If paradigm is just another word for model, a more scientific word for model, then Malcolm here is seeing that they're beyond paradigm. Perhaps he's saying that he sees that they've moved beyond the, his predictions for the island. Recall, if the iterations are a graphic representation of his application of chaos theory on Jurassic Park, and the quotes that begin each iteration are his warnings about what the modeling indicates, then for them to have moved beyond the model, or paradigm, it might suggest, hey, they've made it out alive. They survived. In other words, they've weathered the storm. The floodwaters are receding, and, and other allegories of that nature. 
This might be why he smiles. This may be why he doesn't care about anything anymore. He feels like they've, they're beyond what his modeling predicted, or they survived the system collapse. They survived the Malcolm effect. Recall earlier in episode 51 Control, in page 314, he says that they're entering into a post-scientific world, one which is undisciplined. It's a new world that acquires scientific power, even biotechnological power, in the form of a Saturday night special. Anyone can have power, and there's no one to tell them how to use it. This is also said to be a, quote, major change. And Malcolm said earlier, quote, all major changes are like death. You can't see the other side until you are there. Malcolm sighed, quote, do you have any idea, he said, how unlikely it is that you or any of us will get off this island alive. From that context, given Malcolm's perspective, this strengthens the interpretation that the smile is a sign of relief. Again, the feeling that they've made it beyond the paradigm shift and survived. Life finds a way, as he put it in episode 31, Stegosaur, on page 159. But why almost paradise and almost paradigm? Why does Crichton draw our attention to the earliest chapter in our narrative, Almost Paradise? What does a paradigm shift have to do with the opening of the novel, Almost Paradise? Maybe these chapters just simply serve as bookends, or a way to frame the beginning and the end of the novel. The introduction and prologue set the stage, then everything between Almost Paradise and Almost Paradigm represents the scope of Malcolm's modeling for Jurassic Park. His first quote is, at the earliest drawings of the fractal curve, few clues to the underlying mathematical structure will be seen. That's what he says on page 9. The final iteration, the seventh iteration, warns increasingly the mathematics will demand the courage to face its implications on 365. These sort of lay the groundwork. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into, and the final quote is a challenge. Do you have the courage to face what you must do? That's the summary of Jurassic Park. It's also the beginning and end of Malcolm's modeling. If you were to place two points in the narrative that contains the novel, these are the places. And what proceeds is prologue and introduction, and what follows is a few concluding statements by the author illustrating what taking responsibility looks like through Gennaro, Sadler, and Grant, and what not taking responsibility looks like through Hammond. And then there's the epilogue. The titles of these chapters really do serve as bookends to the novel, and intentionally so. Perhaps as readers, we will recall this moment and identify its familiarity and pause to reflect upon how far we've come through this journey. But let's be clear, there isn't specifically all that much in common between the actual chapters which bear these very similar names. Perhaps we're being encouraged to think back on the beginning of the story and consider how far we've come. Or perhaps we're to recall how dangerous and scary the Procomsignathus can be. Recall that's what jumps out of the bushes in the first chapter. Recall when we meet the dinosaur on the beaches of Cabo Blanco and it bites little Tina, we've been narratively led to believe this creature may be a raptor, which has been described up to this point as a mysterious monster, likely from a mysterious island that's produced the sick workman from Isla Nublar. The raptor, or hoopia, is mythically known as a vampire-like creature that steals away children and babies in the night. Perhaps these titles help us think back to that moment and recall how dangerous the procomsignathuses can be, because being familiar with their venomous bites and proclivities for the young, sick, and elderly might come in handy in a chapter or two, right? So what do you think? Why does Crichton call our attention back to almost paradise now that we're here in almost paradigm? Why does Malcolm believe that they're going beyond paradigm? Why doesn't he care anymore? Why does he smile? You can answer me if you want. There are no bad answers. Except that he's slipping into a terminal delirium. I won't accept that these are just inane utterances from a delusional mind. That is the wrong answer. So I'm sorry, not sorry. All right, signing off, a huge thank you to my special guests today from the Weird Algorithm podcast, Matt Kelly and Matthew Milligan. 
I've been desperate to finally do a Weird Al episode, and you guys brought all the insight, zaniness, and fun I could hope for. Thank you so much. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book or add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Podcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead Graphic Novel, the Second Lapse Graphic Novelettes, The Infantry, The Worst of Them All, The King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting me at schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Podcast, the Jurassic Park Podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time. <laughs> <Praise>. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>